Welcome to Illinois Family Spotlight, a conversation about issues of the day from a biblical perspective, as well as highlights from interviews, conferences, and events. Here's Monty Larrick. Thanks for making Illinois Family Spotlight part of your day. Illinois voters faced with yet another election, and I'm not referring to the 2024 presidential election. The April 4th consolidated election just a few weeks away. The outcome of the voting will determine the makeup of local offices in cities and communities across Illinois. Some of these local offices, in a way, serve as a training ground for winning candidates who may be tabbed by party officials to run for higher offices in the future. So it's really important that we vote in the consolidated election, but also know who we're voting for. Let's get to know one of the candidates in the spring election, Anthony Catella. He's a candidate for the St. Charles Library Board. He describes himself as pro-life, conservative, man of faith. He has a theological background. He's a member of the Veterans Reserve Corps. Anthony, your bio would suggest to our listeners that you are more than qualified for this job, but the wokesters who run a lot of libraries probably have a different view. How are voters in St. Charles reacting to your candidacy? I, so far, have received a favorable response uh, to my candidacy. My hometown of St. Charles is a has traditionally been a very conservative bastion. A lot of mostly conservative people live there. I'm sure that there are more more liberally minded people that live there too, but I don't think that they're in the majority as much. So they want a conservative on the library board. That's my general uh, feeling. That's my general feeling. I haven't seen too many controversial items in my hometown library. I, I think people in St. Charles generally want somebody that's level-headed, uh, more right of center, uh, certainly not extreme, but someone sane. And sanity is not extremism. From Barry Goldwater, he said, and I can quote him, he said, extremism in defense of liberty is no vice, and moderation in pursuit of justice is no virtue. He didn't mean negativism. These ideals are so precious and right and good that you're going to put your life on the line for them to preserve them. That's what he meant by extremism. But so often people take that word out of context. Why are you running for the library board? I'm running because I was asked to run by a group of people that I meet with on a weekly basis who think rather highly of me and I of them. Conservative folks? These folks are good people, and uh, they're concerned citizens. They're concerned about what they see happening in our society today, and they want to uh, do something about it. And so I'm, I'm doing this because, well, I want to do it. I'm happy to do it, but I, I feel like I'm, in a sense, answering a call. They're stepping up. You feel like the public needs someone with your background, and we want to get into your background, needs to be in that library board to keep tabs on what's happening. Well, sure, uh, to be a good steward of the gifts that we have. What's your vision for the library? How can it best serve the public? My vision would simply be, uh, if you would allow me to be a little stump speechy here, uh, I would say to my fellow St. Charlesians who pay the taxes for our library district that we should remain united against the indoctrination of our children and united for the education of our children. And if we stick together and, and don't uh, quibble over small questions, we will have an education for our children free, free from woke corruption, 
and based upon our Judeo-Christian heritage, an environment where every child can be safe and learn and in which every American can be proud. Well, when I think of libraries these days, unfortunately, a lot of negatives come to mind. Porn viewing on the Internet in the library, books that could be considered porn, few conservative and Christian books, and Drag Queen Story Hour. How would you address these issues? Well, in all compassion and decency, I would say that I am opposed to these things. I think common decency would have anybody be opposed to these things except the people that are for them, (laughs) as is the case with all great issues. You have your people for, you have your people against. But the things you've mentioned, um, they always used to be around, but they didn't want to have the, the platform that they're clamoring for now. And that, you know, is... I think it's all part of a, of a left-wing Marxist agenda to bring down our society by corrupting it with things that are not civilizing, are not decent and, and good and just and right. Do you think if you're elected that there will be enough folks on the board that will at least attempt to keep this stuff out of the St. Charles Library? That's my hope. As the scriptures teach us, as, long as, it, as much as it's within you, be at peace with all men. I don't seek to uh, be at odds with anyone, but at the same time, however, silence breeds consent. Silence is consent, and if if something is wrong, you're walking along the way on a path and you have a pebble in your shoe and you keep walking, you're going to be irritated by that. You're going to, any sensible person is going to stop and take their shoe off and get rid of the pebble and then continue their walk in a peaceful and a calm and a more comfortable way. So when something in society comes up or in a neighborhood or in a debate, a political debate or in our life, and and it's just doesn't seem right, then you're going to have to either keep on walking in pain or stop and solve the problem. And I think some of the things that we've mentioned that are creeping into our culture, our libraries, our literature, is is hurtful for some of our vulnerable amongst us, our our children below the age of 18, six and years old and kindergarten and, and grade school ages. They can't afford to see these, be exposed to these materials without some psychological negativism occurring to them that would scar them for life and cause them to make bad decisions down the road. You know, train a child where he needs to be, and then when he's old, he won't forget it. And if you train them in the right things, they'll know how to live a right life. If you train them in the wrong things, they'll, they'll do wrong. And I think common sense and science and education and psychology tell us all this is right. Well, here's a headline in the Sun-Times, and I want to get your reaction. Here's the headline. Facing pressure to ban books, suburban libraries become a battlefield for the First Amendment. How do you react to that? The challenge is every group thinks that, and every group has the right to this amendment. But what are these groups standing for? Are they standing for what is just, decent, and right? Or are they standing for things that are opposed to justice and decency and righteousness and goodness? And we have to really make that distinction. We don't have to hate these people. We don't have to like them either, like what they do. And we and the battle of the First Amendment is everybody has the right to their First Amendment. But you have to see that what you're talking about, is that going to be beneficial for everybody? You know, these people that as we mentioned, these the drag queen hour or the, the pornographic nature of things on the Internet and, and in the libraries. And this, Look, I'm opposed to all that, and I'm opposed to it in our libraries. Keep it away from kids that don't need to see that or experience that. Let me go on to a couple other things library-related. What do you think are the most pressing issues facing taxpayer-funded libraries today? Well, 
everybody wants to know where their money's going. The people of the cities pay their taxes to support the libraries. And I think most people want their money to go to good facilities and good materials. Uh, for instance, in my hometown of St. Charles, this is the second time in my lifetime where we rebuilt the library. People want to know where their money's going to, and most people want their money to go to good things. As I say, St. Charles is a pretty conservative bastion, and I think they're not going to pay unless they know their money's going to a, a worthwhile project. Here's the history of the St. Charles Library. Years and years ago, over 100 years ago, it was the home of uh, William Berry, a local judge and a friend of Abraham Lincoln's. And Abraham Lincoln came to St. Charles uh, in 1859, 1860, prior to his running for the presidency. And he visited the home of Judge Berry. And I was just in that home recently in, in what was his library where he and Lincoln spoke or visited. But then after the judge passed, his library became the first library in St. Charles from 1889 to 1905 when the Carnegie Library was built in St. Charles. Andrew Carnegie evidently gave money to St. Charles to help the town build its second library up on Fifth Avenue and Main Street. And there's this, the original building still exists today. But then in 1964, the third library was built in St. Charles, and that's the one I came up in as a youngster. But then in 1988, that was remodeled again. And just recently, it was remodeled again. Well, they spent something like $18.6 million for this renovation and expansion of about 10,000 feet. Was it worth it? So far, so good. So far, so good. So if you had been on the library board back in 2019 when this happened, Hindsight is always twenty twenty, and now that we have the benefit of hindsight uh, and I see something good so far, I, I probably would have voted for it. Let me ask you this. Uh, there are folks who would suggest that we really don't need libraries today. You can get everything from the Internet. Well, you could have a library within a library now. You go to the, your public library, and you can go to, your com go to the com any one of the battery of computers they have arrayed there and be at that library within the library. That's what I would call it, the library within the library. But the concept of library must always, I think, be settled and fixed in our, in our culture because it's, uh, it's the place where, the, where books are and where you can sit in quietude and, and open a book and peruse its pages. There's a big book that's opened at the library in Batavia. It's artwork, and uh, it looks like a book, and it's got a beautiful quotation of Ralph Waldo Emerson, or Longfellow, about the beauty of reading a book. And no matter how far we advance in technology, the book bound cover to cover can't lose that. We, we shouldn't lose that because that's something that's part of our culture this is Illinois Family Spotlight. After timeout, we're going to continue our conversation with Anthony Catella. In our next segment, Mr. Catella will be wearing his pro-freedom military veteran theological hat or hats after this. With a woman to look at culture from a Christian worldview, I'm John Stone Street with The Point. Ever since Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court last summer, lawmakers and media outlets have increasingly demonized pro-life voices and policies as racist and anti-woman. Recently, House Democrats introduced a bill to overturn the decades-old Hyde Amendment that prohibits the use of government funds for abortion. Sponsors of the bill claim the Hyde Amendment is discriminatory and racist, which disproportionately impacts black and brown communities. But they've got it exactly backwards. Abortion disproportionately impacts minority communities. Black women have the highest abortion rates compared to women of other ethnicities. 79% of Planned Parenthood surgical abortion facilities exist near minority neighborhoods. 
This, in fact, is completely consistent with the racist vision on which the pro-abortion movement in America was founded from the very beginning. Far from being oppressive and racist, the Hyde Amendment has successfully kept tax dollars out of the most oppressive, racist, and systemically evil practice that currently plagues our country. I'm John Stone Street. Christians must champion the sanctity of human life, but it's not easy in abortion destination Illinois. For fresh insights on winning the fight for life, join the Illinois Family Institute Saturday, March 18th at the Village Church of Barrington for IFI's Pro-Life Worldview Conference. To register, click events at IllinoisFamily.org. Nationally acclaimed life leaders Scott Phelps, Dr. John Diggs, and Scott Klusendorf will offer biblical, common-sense perspectives on how to make the protection of life normal again, even in Illinois. We want to bring it back to the question, what is the unborn? Is the unborn one of us? If so, the unborn should not be killed. If you believe that life is sacred and can and must be protected, then please attend the IFI Worldview Conference. To register, click events at IllinoisFamily.org, IllinoisFamily.org. Thanks for joining Illinois Family Spotlight. Monty Larrick here, and I'm joined by Anthony Catella, candidate for the St. Charles Library Board. And Mr. Catella, you describe yourself as a man of faith. You have theology in your background. How has that helped to shape your political perspectives? You believe, for instance, our rights are given from God. Oh, I certainly do. Inalienable rights. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Declaration of Independence, second paragraph. Kamala Harris left out life. I'm sorry. Well, I put it back in for Okay, there you go. Your belief that our rights come from God has kind of shaped your political viewpoint. Oh, it has. Tell me. Well, because uh, being born in this country, uh, you're introduced to the, the great heritage of, uh, of faith and freedom that our founding fathers put us on from the very beginning. I mean, they, they looked back to the uh, Greek democracy, they looked back to the Roman Republic, and they looked back just uh, two or three hundred years before their own time with the uh, developments in England, with the great revolutions they had in England and their civil war, which they made, instead of just having a king, they decided to have a representative body known as parliament. And that was just a a hundred years before we became a constitutional republic ourselves, with George Washington as our first president. And Washington said that uh, you cannot, it is impossible to govern without a knowledge of God and the Bible. So if George Washington said it, and he's the father of our country, don't you think that that's a pretty good foundation on which to stand? I certainly do. But we've gotten away from that. That's unfortunate. I think most people haven't. But the fact that we have gotten away from it is because we've allowed, through a, the very nature of our free society, we've allowed other groups that don't necessarily believe in that to get a, a bigger TV screen, a wider, uh, more press, uh, for whatever reason, under freedom of the press. I think we've fallen away from it to our detriment but to our betterment, we can come back to it. And I think most people believe in our original founding ideals than don't. The problem is the unbelievers who scoff at these things, unfortunately, they seem to get more, more airtime. That's my general take of the, of the dilemma. And you served in the military, U.S. Army. Yes, sir. 
my active duty was 1994 to 1999. Actually, it was a, it was a full eight-year contract. It didn't, it didn't expire until 2002. But I was um, off active duty in 1999, and then I uh, went back to active reserve duty because I had more time left on my original contract. And I went from 01 to 02, and I just thought that was going to be uh, uh, just a, one last year in my contract uh, with simple, simply uh, reporting to drills once a month. But uh, something interesting happened, something terrible happened on a day in September, and my reserve unit was uh, consequently, with many units, called active duty, and I served in Operation Enduring Freedom stateside at Fort Hood from 2001 to 2002. That's when my uh, enlistment expired, but I, I swore in as an officer in the Army Reserves because at that time I was a divinity student and I was a chaplain candidate got to be a chaplain candidate, and a chaplain candidate accepts a, an Army commission or military commission. In my case, it was Army. And I trained for the chaplain corps in conjunction with my seminary training. So you went from military police to the chaplaincy. I, I sure did, and that throws a lot of people for a loop. Well, what was that experience like, going from one to the other? Well, it was something that I felt was God calling me to. And MP and chaplain, uh, most people think that that's totally opposite each other. But in many ways, there's a lot of continuity. I mean, as an MP, you're enforcing a body of law and trying to maintain the good life for people, show them the right way to go, hopefully using verbal persuasion and not so much force, although we're trained in both. Then the chaplain is a man of God or woman of God, and, and they're trained to understand a body of law, i.e. God's law, and to explain it to people and show them the way to go in that way of life and uh, thinking and acting, which was just supposed to, and I think in many ways does, provide a good life. And it's an enforcement. Both, In other words, both are enforcers of, of a body of law, either man's law, legal law, military law, or God's law. Well, let me ask you this. In today's military, even if you're in the chaplaincy, can you mention Jesus Christ? I've heard of many struggles of many chaplains that have met with that dilemma and that challenge and that struggle, that they are discouraged to mention the, the name of the Savior in, in their prayers. But that's because of the social controversy that has emerged over these last several decades over the differing interpretations of the, se the separation of church and state. But as I learned in the chaplain school, the chaplain corps exists for the purpose of providing the free exercise of religion for our armed forces, for, our, for members of our armed forces. Our army is composed, our, our military, i.e. our army, is composed of people from every part of our country, all walks of life and various and different denominations and faith groups. So they're all represented by the chaplain corps. As I was taught in the chaplain school, we're there for the provide the free exercise of religion guaranteed by the Constitution that we all take an oath to support and defend. But we're also there to minister to the people of our own denominations, i.e. Christian. And really, it's impossible to pray as a Christian without mentioning the blessed Savior's name, Jesus. And so we, the chaplains should have that right to do that. But we are always, we were taught to be denominational specific. Now, if, if I'm a, as a Christian chaplain, I was trained to pray in my in the name of, of Jesus. And I remember we went on a field training exercise with, uh, with our battalion, and, and there was time for chapel. We set up the chapel tent. And, you know, of all the people that were in the battalion on that training exercise, we had about maybe maybe between 5 and 15 soldiers show up. But the chaplain said, this is different from when I was in Kuwait or when I was in Saudi Arabia. And the night before the ground war began, 
the chapel tent was filled to capacity. So once again, it proves that there's no atheists in the foxholes. Yeah, I, I want to back up. Something that uh, you're involved in even now is the military reserves. I, I didn't know this existed. Sure, Veteran well, Reserve Corps. Right on. Oh, yes, sir. It's a it's a component of the Army of the United States. You see, when I was in, in basic training or my first duty station, a uh, sergeant of mine he gave us a little sergeant's time training, and he said, look look what's on the left of your uniform. It says U.S. Army. The U.S. Army, and then there's also the Army Reserve, and then there's also the Army National Guard. And he said, all of those components comprise the Army of the United States. And I had hitherto not known that. And there's even more components that comprise the Army of the United States, among which is the Veterans Reserve Corps, Army of the United States. And uh, that goes back to the Civil War. In 1863, there were soldiers that were either wounded in battle and couldn't continue at the front, or soldiers that were on their way out, having completed their enlistments, but still wanting to serve in some capacity, particularly in uniform. So Abraham Lincoln and the Congress uh, commissioned a, a Veterans Reserve Corps, where soldiers who were no longer on active duty could still serve uh, wearing the federal uniform. And it was also known as the Invalid Corps because so many of those soldiers that comprised those ranks either had a missing leg or arm or eye or what have you or because of severe wounds in battle, but they still were able to contribute. And they also uh, escorted Lincoln's train, Lincoln's body home to Springfield upon after his assassination. And then their congressional charter was was established in 1866 and then reestablished in 1911. There's only a few states in the Union that actually have Veterans Reserve Corps units, and Illinois doesn't have any, but Indiana does. So I'm a part of the 1st Indiana Battalion of the Veterans Reserve Corps. So what do they do now? Now we're basically a civil affairs type of a unit, activities with the civil populations, particularly of our localities and communities where we'll, we're trained. Our mission medal is to, to help our fellow citizens in time of emergency or need. That's really what we do as our mission. We hear so much about wokeness in the military now. What's going on? What do you think is going on and how we correct the situation? I just think it's something that is totally foreign to uh, my upbringing and education. As I look around and see what is happening with this and this movement, I I just see it uh, rather foreign. Uh, and just some, there's just something not right about it. And I've just concluded that it is a, it's really a, a Marxist attempt to uh, attack the very institutions of this society of ours. And if we're not careful, they could win. Well, let me ask you this. If, God forbid, we would wind up in war with China, could we win? I, I don't think we could. I don't think we could, and I just just a few days ago I heard on the news of a, a possible conflict with China by 2025. But I uh, I am opposed to the Chinese communists. I am opposed to the Russian communists, and I am opposed to the North Korean communists. I am opposed to communism. That's our enemy. It was in the Cold War, and it's just our, as much our enemy now as it was in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s, and up until 1989 when the Soviet Union collapsed. The Chinese Communist government is, the, is an existential threat to the United States and the sovereignty and the government and the people of the United States. And they want to work us ill. They're a nation that wishes us ill. And we, I would wish, personally, that we would have an army. In answer to your question, could we beat China in a war? Not right now, but I'll tell you what. We could beat them if we had an army and navy and air force equal to 
theirs, man to man, plane for plane, ship for ship, tank for tank. But we don't. And we got us. We have a strong military, but we don't have a big military. We don't have a large military on the scale of a China. Do we have the leadership? Not right now. Not in the White House right now. And I, I speak as a citizen. I speak as a citizen of the United States. Right now, my views do not reflect that of the organization to which I'm a part now. They are my views as a political candidate in the here and now. I do not believe we have an administration in the White House at this hour that is capable enough of defending the Constitution of the United States or the people of the United States. We do not have the leadership that we need to be ready to fight and win a war against our enemies. Do you think the Biden administration is trying to drive conservatives and Christians out of our military? It certainly appears that way. I would hope that that's not true, but it certainly appears that way, although there is a glimmer of hope in the fact that I think that uh, the, those of our personnel that refused to take the vaccine and were discharged, I believe there's an opportunity for them to be reinstated. So that's a sign of hope. But let me say that, of course, when you, when you put on the uniform of your country, you have to accept certain limitations in your actions and your speech. But but as George Washington said, when we assume the soldier, George Washington said, we did not discard the citizen. And I am proud to say that I am a citizen soldier. And uh, the fact is, um, this administration, I just don't have confidence in it. I don't have confidence in its leadership. And I, I would hope that they would put politics aside when it comes to the military, that when a person is in the military uniform serving their country, I would, I would hope that this administration, like all administrations before, and Lord willing, all administrations henceforth, they would look at the soldier, the sailor, or the Marine and see soldier, sailor, and Marine and see American, an American willing to stand up, put that uniform on, raise that right hand, take the oath, and be ready to bear arms in defense of this powerful republic. That should be the keystone of the arch. Anthony Catella, thank you so much. What a wealth of information from all over the place, so your military background, your theological background, and you're a candidate for the St. Charles Library Board. So people interested in your campaign, where do they go? You could go to uh, youtube.com and put in my name, Anthony Catella, and you can see some of my, my presentations and speeches, and I, I hope you would uh, hear and see something that you would uh, find general agreement on. The elections, April 3rd? April 4th. April 4th. Okay. Live in St. Charles, you might want to consider... Anthony Catella for Library Board Trustee. Thank you, Anthony. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you, Monty. And thank you folks for tuning in. Please support the work of Illinois Family Institute, Illinois Family Action. Remember our events page. Check out what's happening. Just click events at illinoisfamily.org. And uh, our March Worldview Conference coming up. You want to get all the details there. Take care, stay healthy, stay active, and God bless. For more information about Illinois Family Spotlight, visit ifiaction.org. And to email questions and comments, do so at feedback at ifiaction.org.